Okay, so Acts uh, 17. Let's start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you through the Lord to thank you for your Son and for all that we've seen and known in him. And to thank you for the great work that you have done with, with people and through people like the Apostle Paul. And we pray that you'll open our eyes as we read and hear about the preaching of your word 2,000 years ago. And that we might see that we are the same human beings as they were, hearing the same message, and that we might respond as they did. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Right, so when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Well, just wait a minute. We saw at the end of chapter 16 that they had been in prison in Philippi. They'd been beaten, they'd been tortured, they'd been put in prison, and then there was an earthquake, and the prison keeper got baptised, etc. When you look at the life of Paul, you know, a lot of what he went through would have given anybody PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm pretty sure that he would have had PTSD, sure he would have done. And yet the great thing about him is that he kept on keeping on. And that is part of what it is to be a Christian, to keep on keeping on. It's the loneliness of the long distance runner. And Paul has a word in Greek that he uses about this macrothumia. It means sort of endurance, keeping on, keeping on. And that's quite a, a feature of what it is to be a Christian. And when you look at human beings who don't have the Lord Jesus in their lives, you see they give up very easily. Oh, this didn't work out. Oh, I should get depressed. Oh, this happened, so I'm now swamped by my mental health issues. I'm now swamped by life, by what happened. Poor me. You know? Yeah, that's understandable. But there is, in the Lord Jesus, there is this ability to keep on keeping on. And you see that with Paul, that he goes from town to town. He is abused, he is beaten up, he is put in prison, he is stoned and left for dead. He would have had broken bones, his face would have been a bit of a mess, he'd have had marks on his body from all the stuff he went through. But he keeps on going. So he gets booted out of uh, Philippi, and he keeps going. Well, he came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I understand it's got the article there. There was the synagogue of the Jews. Now, Paul then, verse 2, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbath days and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This is a pattern that you see all the way through Paul's ministry, that he rocks up in a town, he goes straight to where, where's any Jews, because he was a Jew. So he, where's the Jews? He goes to the Jews, starts arguing with them, you know what, you guys crucified Jesus, and I was one of you, I was a rabbi, and now I've seen the light, Jesus is the Messiah, blah, blah. And some of them believe, some of them don't. There's a lot of angst, a lot of argy-bargy, a lot of fighting, and they tend to beat him up, and they might convert, convert a few... Gentiles, but then he, he moves on. That was the pattern of his ministry. But, well, I'll put to you that that was not actually the intention of the Lord Jesus. Because the Lord decided, we are told, that Peter was to be the apostle to the Jews, and Paul was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So that was God's choice. 
Now, of course, we would have said, oh no, if you're going to preach to Jews, it's far better to have a guy like Paul on the job, who was a rabbi, who was a smart bloke, who, who knew the Old Testament probably off by heart, who could reason with the Jews. He'd be the right guy for the job, would he not? Whereas Peter, well, Peter was a nice bloke and all that, but he was a fisherman, and when he stands up and preaches in Acts chapter 2, they mock him. They say he's ignorant and unlearned. He's without grammar. He's not been to school. Clearly this guy has never been, been, been schooled. This fellow makes mistakes in grammar. He's a country boy. He's a fisherman from the Sea of Galilee. Maybe send him to the Gentiles, because there was a lot of Gentiles in Galilee. He, he would have known how to deal with Gentiles. That's how we would have done it. But, yeah, let, let's, uh, let's send Peter to the Gentiles and Paul, the smart ex-rabbi. Let's send him to the Jews. But the Lord did it the other way around. And that's what he does. He often puts us into situations where we are not, in fact, ideally cut out for the job. Duncan running a soup kitchen. <laughs> when a bloke can hardly cook, you know. Chicken nuggets for, the, for my kids is about it. You know? Stuff like that, you know. Um, that's, that's his style. That is absolutely the, the Lord's style. Absolutely. Because he doesn't like it when someone says, oh, I'm very qualified to do this. Oh, I'm very good at this. No. And you look at yourselves and you, you, we all think, oh, but who am I? I'm not qualified to do anything. But the thing is, is as soon as you say that, it's hard, oh, no, I'm not qualified for this job. That is when the Lord will use you. And as I keep saying, the greatest usage that you can have is for the Lord to use you to open someone else's eyes to the gospel. So that you can lead somebody from this dumb broadwalk life in Croydon to everlasting life in God's kingdom when Jesus comes back. That's the greatest thing that you can do. And we're all capable of doing that because we all know people. We all know lots of people. And so that, that's his way that he uses people who are not ideally cut out for the job. Right, so then Paul was sent to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But I don't think he liked that. Because he obviously thought, no, you know, I, I was a rabbi. I know what I'm doing. Um, I, I'm very good at preaching to Jewish people, so he thought. And so wherever he goes, he goes straight away to the Jews. And he gets in trouble for it. And I said the other day that when you read about his various missionary journeys, Luke mentions often whether the wind was behind them or not. Because they had sailing ships, right? And so if you're going to sail from this port to that port, well, it's pretty important that you've got the wind right behind you. If the wind is against you, it's going to take you ages. And if the wind is blowing to one side, oh no, you're going to, get, you're going to have to keep tacking, tick-tacking. <coughs> we saw that when he goes first of all to preach in Europe, in uh, Macedonia, they set sail, and Luke says, and we went with a straight course. In other words, the wind was right behind him. And I said that in Hebrew and in Greek, the words for wind and spirit are the same. 
So when he had the wind behind him, blowing him directly on that course, that was having the Holy Spirit, as it were, directly behind him, blowing him directly the right way. But sometimes you read, for example, when he's sailing to Jerusalem, because he desperately wants to be in Jerusalem to keep the, one of the feasts, it says the wind was contrary to them. Yeah, it's difficult. It was going against the wind. And so you have a case there where it wasn't a case of sinning. It wasn't that Paul was sinning in this. It was just that it was making life harder for himself than it needed to have been. That, unfortunately, is what we are all capable of doing. You don't go completely God's way. You know, I want to go this way. I want to go that way. Well, he'll let you do that. But you will end up, I'm afraid, making life a lot harder for yourself. And that's what Paul did, in my honest uh, and considered. That is, that is what he did. That he, he got his thing about, I want to preach to the Jews, because I'm a Jew and I was a rabbi. I'm very good at this. No, Paul, just go and talk to the Gentiles. But anyway, he, he insists on doing this. So it wasn't a sin. In the same way as there's stuff in our lives that is not a sin. There are sins. We all sin, right? But there's other stuff that is not so much sin. There's just unwisdom and blockheadedness. And we all, you know, plenty of that in our lives for all of us. And... <clears throat> When you think of the Lord's parables of the lost, which we've often talked about, he talks about the lost coin. A woman has a coin that she loses and she looks for it and finds it. And then a shepherd has a lost sheep that he goes out and finds and brings back. And then a man has a lost son who sins and goes and spends all his money and then eventually comes back. When you look at those three things, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Well, the lost son definitely sinned, no doubt about that. Did the lost coin sin? No, it got lost, but it wasn't the coin's fault. The lost sheep, well, was it the sheep's fault that it got lost? Did sheep sin in that sense? I would have said, no, it was just a sheep, and sheep are stupid, and sheep do get lost. That's how it goes. It wasn't a sin. It was. It just goes to the territory of being a sheep. And so it is when you look at your life. There are sins that you do, like the prodigal son, definitely. There's other stuff where you're just like a lost coin, where it wasn't your fault, but you ended up lost. And there's other stuff where you are like a lost sheep, where you went astray... Not because it was a sin, but because you're stupid. Because I'm stupid. Because we are all stupid at times. And we, we make mistakes. And it is human to err. It is human to, you know, make mistakes. That's, uh, that's just how it is of being human. So, with this thing with Paul, where he keeps on going to the Jews and, and all that, um, and gets beat up for it, yes, um, it wasn't wise, and he suffered for it, because they really got annoyed. Even today, you try and preach to Jewish people. You tell them, you know what, you guys crucified Jesus. Oh, what do you mean we crucified Jesus? Oh. You know what, the Old Testament prophets talk about Jesus as, as, the, as your Jewish Messiah. Why don't you accept him? Whoa, 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 whoa. Even today, as I say, Jewish people get, get very touchy about being preached to, let alone 
in the first century, let alone with Paul doing it, who was uh, very pushy and could say, you know, I was one of you, I was going around persecuting Christians and so on. So I'm saying that there are times when you examine yourself. The unexamined life is not worth living, some, some smart Alex said. So uh, that's, that's true, not far wrong. So my point is that, yeah, when you do examine your life, you see stuff like the lost coin, where this was not my fault, but I got lost. You see stuff like the lost sheep, well, as I say, the sheep sin. Well, not really in that sense, they get lost because they're stupid. And um, yeah, they're fault to some degree, but um, yeah. And then there's the lost son, the prodigal son, who definitely sinned, and yeah, we have to own up that we do sin. So seems to me that this was in the category of being of lost sheep behaviour by, by Paul that he keeps on trying to preach the Jews. And he gets beat up for it and he would have done far better to do what the Lord intended, which is to go and preach to the Gentiles and sink his pride and sink his, um, just forget his idea that, oh, I'm the rabbi who's going to convert the Jews. No, leave it to Peter. So, as his custom was, as he always did, he goes into the synagogue for three Sabbath days. And uh, it says he passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and then gained the synagogue where there was the synagogue of the Jews. Well, it's been said that they, in the whole of Macedonia they've not dug up archaeologists, they've not discovered any other synagogue apart from the one in Thessalonica. Amphipolis and Apollonia were the big population areas, full of Gentiles, the capitals uh, pretty well of their areas. It's like it's saying that Paul passed through them. All these Gentiles, but he, not interested in them. He was making a beeline for Thessalonica because there was the synagogue of the Jews. He wanted to have a, have a go with the Jews. So as his custom was, he went into them for three Sabbath days and reasoned with them from the Scriptures as the Old Testament, explaining and proving that it was necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, suffer and rise from the dead, saying this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Well, to understand what's going on here, you've got to read the letters of Paul to the Thessalonians, because his style was to go and preach, uh, visit, baptize people, go to the synagogue, make some contact with the Jews there and the proselytes, that's the, the Gentiles who weren't Jews, who used to go to synagogue service, and then he baptized people and move on, or more often got kicked out, so he had to move on. And then he would write a letter to these people, like we saw he did at Philippi, the Philippians. And so when you read the letters to the Thessalonians, you are reading the follow-up to what he does here. My point is, he went into them, he spoke to them for three Sabbath days. He was there for, let's say, just over two weeks, three weekends, three Saturdays. And when you read his letters to the Thessalonians, he says, you know what it was like when I first preached the gospel to you guys. He says, um, I was working all the time. I never asked any money from you. I was working all the time to support myself and Timothy and the other guys that were with me. And what was his job? He was a tent maker. A job he could pick up and put down wherever he went. And he says, I was working night and day that I might not ask you for any money. So in the, let's say, three weekends, let's say 20 days, three weeks, 
that he was there in Thessalonica, in, in Thessalonica, he says that I was working all the time. I was working all the time. So even though a lot of spare time, and people worked hard. There was no benefits, there was no welfare state. People had to work. And so the only free day they had was the Sabbath. So he was there just for three Sabbath days. And when you go to synagogue, you go there, the rabbi gives a bit of a talk, may invite someone from the audience if they would like to give a shorter talk. And then there's a lot of social time, chit-chat, tea and coffee, if you go to a synagogue here in London, and, uh, and so on. And it's in that time that I guess Paul was talking to folks about the gospel. But if you look at the number of contact hours that he would have had with them, I wouldn't have said it would have been more than two or three hours for each of those Sabbath days. The rest of the time he was working, he says. So, in the course of what? Contact hours of what? Four or five hours with these people? And it would have been on and off. They might not have all sat and listened to him for the whole two or three hours. But in that time, he preached the gospel to them and baptised them. And then, as we're going to see, he gets kicked out of town. He gets chased out of town. Runs away. But he's baptised them by the time he's left. My point in all this is that the gospel that he preached was very simple. It was enough that he could speak it in, in a few hours and then baptise people. When you read those letters to the Thessalonians, he's answering some of their questions. And one of the questions was, oh, you came here, you baptised us, but you know what, Paul? One of us has died. Some of us have died since you came. They're dead. How awful is that? They're dead forever. And Paul then, in 1 Thessalonians 4, says, no, no, don't sorrow, dry your eyes. Um, they're going to be resurrected when Jesus comes back, and there's going to be the judgment and the calling away to judgment and so forth. So they had pretty basic questions. Like, you know, they, it was so basic that they thought, oh no, like Jesus is going to come back really soon in our lifetime and uh, save us. And oh yeah, we get baptised into him. But then, oh, whoops, one of us has died. Oh, what's happened? And Paul has to explain. So what I'm saying is that their knowledge was very basic. Very basic. And yeah, I've seen this so many times that people with the most simple, basic knowledge of the gospel, maybe illiterate, not able to read uh, a Bible, for example, can get that basic message and be totally motivated by it, be baptised and live by that and suffer a huge amount for the sake of their faith. So the simple knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified, this is absolutely huge in its motivational power that he is there, that he is real. He is up there in heaven. He was down here, here, having our nature. He lived, never sinning, died, for me, rose again, <coughs> ascended to heaven, and will return to save me. And wow, I can be saved. And that's why, yeah, I'll be baptised into him and live my life for him. And this very, if you like, slim, small amount of knowledge 
was what motivated these people. So, he showed them, verse 3, that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So his whole focus was on preaching a person, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is as if he was showing them actually this person, Jesus. He was making Jesus that real to them. And he says this to the Galatians. He says that when I preached Jesus Christ to you, it was as if I showed him, placarded him forth, showed him crucified before your eyes. Because that's what it is. We're preaching a person. That Jesus is real. Absolutely real. Some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the chief women. The devout Greeks would have been the Gentiles who came along to the synagogue service, although they were not Jews. And some of the chief or wealthy women. So this was not a religion for total simpletons. It wasn't a few kind of simple retards who, who said, oh great, oh, that sounds cool. No, these guys were not retards. Like, there was like chief women. There's some very wealthy leading women in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica. And, yeah, they were persuaded by, you could say, a fairly short argument. But the Jews, verse 5, being moved with jealousy, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, and having assembled a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people. When they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some brothers before the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So there is another king, Jesus. Well, when Jesus returns, he will be the king of God's kingdom on earth, but he is still Lord and king now. And part of Paul's message clearly was that there is another king. Right now, there is another king, Jesus. Well, as I've said, he... he, he, he he was working day and night, he says, as a tent maker. That's what he says when he's writing to the Thessalonians. And he's only there in that synagogue for three Sabbath days. And I suggested earlier that that was just a few hours, of, a few contact hours of teaching. And yet these people say, oh, he's turned the world upside down. And the city turned as a riot. Why would that be? It's because of the power of that message that he was teaching. For example, if you just walk out 100 foot from this building and walk down the high street there, there's all sorts of funny people on Croydon High Street preaching all sorts of funny ideas. Some, some blokes saying, oh, God is a pink elephant up in the sky. Look, he's up there sitting on the cloud. Well, that doesn't turn Croydon upside down. You think, I think you've got mental health issues, mate. You can get a pension for that. Um, you know, it, it doesn't make a riot in the city because some bloke is out there preaching some wacky idea about there's a pink elephant up on a, on a cloud. No, no one is paying too much attention. And people are not having a riot because of this guy. People are not saying, that guy turned the world upside down with his message. But when Paul preached Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah, foretold in the Old Testament, who died for you, 
and resurrected for you and will come again and who is now your Lord and Master. Oh wow, it sent people absolutely bonkers. Those who were committed to it were committed to it and those who refused the message got really angry. Why would you get so angry? It's because of your conscience. When I walk past that guy down there who's on about, I don't know, Jesus or God is a pink elephant on a cloud, look, he's just up there. I don't get angry with the guy. I say, no, I don't believe that. But I don't get angry with the guy. I just walk on, I've got my own beliefs, and I, I, don't, you know, I don't get angry with the guy. Why would someone get angry about it? Why would somebody get angry with a religious message? It is because it has touched your conscience. And as I keep saying, there is a hole in the heart of every human being that only Jesus can fill. And when people hear the gospel, they hear what they know intuitively is true. And so when you face the cross of Jesus Christ, and as we, we do that really, as we take the bread and the, and the cup, you are facing him crucified. And you, you can't shrug it off. You can't ho-hum it. You, you can't ho-hum it. You, you can't just say, oh yeah, well, yeah. No. There is something there that is gripping you. And you, you can act tough and act, put on a brave face and say, oh, no, I'm, I'm an atheist. Oh, I don't do God and all that stuff. Yeah, you can say that. But in your heart, you know that there, you know there is truth there. And the only option is total surrender. To say, sure, hands up. Hands up, straight surrender. So if you're struggling with the issue, should I get baptised or not? Get baptised into Jesus. Just into him. You will not regret it, as you can talk to many of the people here who have been baptised into Jesus. Come back to our place, South Croydon. Big bathtub. We're doing simple sweet eyes. So then. Paul says, let a man examine himself and so let him take of that bread and drink of that cup. The bread represents his body and the cup represents his blood. And as I say, there is an appeal there in him to every human heart that nobody can say that, oh, I'm not touched by it. The Son of God, Paul says, loved me and gave himself for me. And that is a, an abiding truth. That he loved me and gave himself for me. That I am loved in this world. That man is not alone in this world. That we have got him. That he has loved me. And that he will come again for me and I will live forever with him. And I'm prepared to surrender all I have for him. So let's give thanks for him. Heavenly Father, we see in this bread and in this, in this cup the symbols of your love to us through him. And we pray with all our hearts that we might identify with him and he with us and live together with him. For his sake. Amen. Amen.